You are listening to the oneofus.net podcast network. giant mega it's right before south by southwest episode so we've got to get a bunch of stuff done at once and this is actually kind of i know you guys don't care about that but you should care about this is a weird episode and that it's really there's so many people that we might actually interrupt each other exactly it's the whole digital noise staff pretty much except marco uh at once here in one episode we're gonna go back and forth with the stuff we saw and we're gonna try and be like Try and get through like it's a big list, so we're gonna try and move through things without like belaboring the point. But that being said, and some of us haven't seen the other things, but we're still gonna chime in like like we know something. We're gonna Salisbury it, if you will. <laughs> Is that the term now? <laughs> I, I'm right there with you. I fully plan to interrupt on every single one of these titles, even though I've only seen about half of them. Oh my god. <laughs> well, anyway, I'm Chris. I'm Joe. Hey, I'm John. I'm Aaron. Well, thank you guys, first off, once again, for doing this. This is the most challenging show to be a part of on oneofus.net because it actually requires a lot of homework. I know patients are sitting off in the corner going, whatever, I'm on Deliberations of Doom. I'm going to watch it. Not this much. <laughs> Deliberations of Doom is the hardest show to be part of because you have to actually sit and watch a lot of stuff that you either have some idea of. Like, often you're like, I don't want to watch this, and you do anyway, or you're like, I have no idea. You're talking what about the Clive Barker episode, aren't you? <laughs> no, I'm talking about this episode right here. right? Or not this episode, but in general, doing this. But that being said, thanks, you guys. Really appreciate it. Y'all are all so good on this. Let's get started right off the bat with a movie that I, th- I suspect that at least like one of you other than Joe, who I mm-hmm. has seen, which is I, Tanya. I, Tanya. What? What? That's how you say it. Everybody's been saying it wrong, actually. She's. It's not whiny enough? No, it's not nearly whiny enough. I thought it was Tania. I mean, myself. I mean, this is directed by Craig Gillespie. I remember when I first saw the trailer for this, I was like, does anyone want to see a Tanya Harding movie? Doesn't everybody kind of go like, oh, she's a part of our history we'd rather just kind of forget happened? And then after seeing this movie, I was like, Wow. I'm really glad we kind of got this recontextualization of this whole thing. Yeah. I'm not sure I'm sold on, you know, it being accurate or anything, but it presents a lot of interesting ideas in this day and time of like, like maybe that had a, our judgment of Tanya Harding is the skater who supposedly, not personally, but her ex-husband uh, being the one who injured her rival Olympic skater, uh, like being this ultimate villain. Maybe our contextualization so, of that was based on a sort of assumption of guilt more than... Sure, but that that actually has very little to do with it. Uh, so I, when when I was a teenager, I was hopped up on, on ADD medication, which meant I slept about two hours a night. And so when the news cycle hit on this story, I got to see Nancy Kerrigan go, why, about, I don't know, 50, 60 times before 6 a.m., <laughs> So I, I vividly remember this, and I would say that the real fascination with with hating Tanya Harding was because she was a redneck. Oh, absolutely! <laughs> like because she was seen as trash, and this movie actually delves into that quite a bit well, without it, being ham fisted about it. It thoroughly acknowledges that, like, yeah, she's a redneck, like, but 
like she kind of came from a horrible, horrible familial situation with Allison Janney just having won the Best Supporting Actress role, and I thought rightfully so. I thought not. For, no, no. Okay. For for really? her for her mother here, like who's she's a horrible, horrible human being. Right, but the thing is, this this wasn't like a nuanced character piece. This was her mom really was that batshit awful. Mm-hmm. So like to play batshit awful is uh, you know. Oh, okay, uh, say the mean things. I want to jump in just because uh, I thought that her performance of the mother was one of the best parts of the movie simply because, yes, she was batshit awful. I mean, she's possibly the worst monster in a mo- in a Academy Award session that included a fish man. I, I keep but, saying she was the villain, yeah. ultimate villain of 2017 <laughs> in the film. But uh, she's also someone who doesn't think she's a villain. She's a horrible, horrible human being who thinks she's an angel. Maybe it's just because I know people like that in real life. Some oh, of them I'm family. So, sorry. so it's just like, oh. no, this isn't special. This Joe. is this is just how some people are. Joe, I don't. I don't do you want to be ice skating? Is that what you're not doing? That I grew up in the desert, doing? so of course I wanted to be. Ice skating. <laughs> you wanted to be. Uh, nuclear winter skating. Let's just uh, say that I, I I do some needlework. And fair enough. It's great flair. I, I personally really liked this whole film a lot. I mean, it's not subtle on any level. It's it's like a very out in front comedy slashed with tragedy. Like it's just it's almost. I don't even know how to describe it, really. It's kind of like, there's a weird, people keep saying, I feel like I want to compare it to Goodfellas, but <laughs> there's no way to compare it to Goodfellas. It has that sort of like, here's a character who is Margot Ro- Robbie's character, who is very much breaking the fourth wall with the audience uh, repeatedly through it, even turning to the camera going, that's not how this happened, you know. Which is not a Goodfellas thing, but that sort of relating to with lots of music throughout of it, with a lot of period piece type stuff. But I I feel like this film is a lot deeper than that comparison allowed for that a lot of people were making. Well, I think uh, I think Margot Robbie should take how she played Tanya Harding and and, and uh, bring it to uh, Harley Quinn because it was more interesting than her take on it. Oh, fair enough. I really did like Sebastian uh, Stan as her uh, ex-husband uh, or husband at points. And once again, I really, I, I personally thought Alison Janney was great in here. But um, if you do want to see this, and I imagine you do at this point because the Oscars, obviously, it was a big deal. There's a commentary with the director. There's almost 20 minutes of deleted scenes here, which I did actually watch. And I was pleasantly surprised that more than not, this was worth seeing. A lot of the time, deleted scenes are kind of a waste of time. They're just extended sequences that add barely nothing, and I thought this was pretty good. Uh, the behind-the-scenes, on the other hand, is just another collection of EPKs. There's nothing really worthwhile here. Well, that's a shame to hear, because of all the digital work they did uh, to put to Ooh. put her face on the body, I'm surprised right. there's oh, not special that. features galore about how they shot the skating. Well, I, it's funny because, like, other, I saw this in a cabin in the woods in Montreal on a TV that was 20 feet from me because that's the way my wife's family wanted to watch it. Uh-huh. And I was like, can we all, can we, like, maybe we could all, sl-? and they're like, no, no, we're just going. I was like, God damn it. And I was like, well, I didn't notice a problem. And everyone I know saw it in the theater was like, 
You didn't notice a no, problem? No, it was like it was the... it was really bad. It oh, was okay. super. It noticeable. looks like they use deep fakes to replace her face and do it. It's just terrible. Oh wow. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And and like a lot of the times when they're when she's in a motion shot, she has this kind of glow about her that's obviously not what was intended. It was just like semi sloppy special effects to wow. incorporate that. I out. saw it on like a seven twenty p screener, and so and you didn't notice. And it I didn't well. notice it. I, I actually thought that they pulled it off. What what they were trying to do, I thought they pulled it off. They made it look like she was skating. Okay, uh, but I didn't see it theatrically. I didn't see it on you know in high definition. So I, I will say, I think the movie to compare this to is and the big shot, the one about the uh, it's the one about the housing market crash mm-hmm. that came out a couple of years ago. That was like a docudrama with and where it's. It's kind of a dramatic film. The big short? You big mean? short. Yeah. Thank okay. you. I was but like, really, I, I was. It does shot, have Margot Robbie, short, Robbie in it. <laughs> but yeah, like, it feels like a documentary that they just instead went, you know what? We have all this documentary material. We're just going to actually hire actors to shoot it and shoot it well. Yeah, fair enough. All right, let's move on to our next title, which is The Deuce. Aaron, this is one you watched some of, at least. Uh, I don't know how far you got into this. I got all but the last episode. Wow, really? uh, I did not expect that. I marathoned this yesterday when I had a work-from-home day, and thanks to you, I've been struggling to not call women bitches and not talk (laughs) about my penis all the time, because that's everywhere in this show. What do you mean, thanks to me? (laughs) (laughs) It's not my. I didn't make this show. <laughs> no, uh, but you usually call them bitches, and yeah. no, <laughs> let's not start that, please. This is a HBO show by the guy who was made, you know, world famous for creating a show that's considered to be one of the greatest TV shows of all time, The Wire. David Simon, uh, and this is his take on Times Square in New York City in the early seventies, when uh, by HBO, where uh, things were. Just starting to go from this total sleaze fest of hookers and and like just total crime to somebody going, this is a huge area right in the middle of New York City. Why aren't we monetizing this better? Which ultimately I feel by the end of the show is the point where you're like these guys going, we can't just throw the sleaze out the window. That's not as simple as coming in. We can't just come in with cops and arrest everybody. That's going to work. We have to do this in steps. And... Like, this is so way pre-Giuliani. You know, it's but, interesting. Watching this, I had to Google when Giuliani happened. Yeah. I was like, wait a minute. It's way This is so kind of what's going on there. Like, is this the story of Giuliani? No, it's the early 70s. <laughs> yeah. Giuliani's not till the 80s, but if none of this had happened, Giuliani actually turning Times Square into, like, the outside of any given Disney uh, location would never have happened, you know? Well, and you called out by that this is by the makers of The Wire. Yeah. I did not know that going in, but I realized it about two episodes in, because it says it's about the porn industry. It's about the porn industry in the same way that The Wire is is entirely about the drugs, where, yes, it's there. It's a part of it, but he's not really interested in talking about the rise of porn. He's interested in showing what this era of New York City was like with all of these people, the, the hookers, the bar owners, where they go, and so, because of that, it tends to move a little slower than most TV does. But when it gets there, I think it's a far more rewarding journey. I think that this is going to be up there with The Wire and Treme, where it's his shows about these really unique areas. Well, that are I mean, interesting. I love that it doesn't just go, "Hey, it's porn." It's like there was that wasn't really happening. It was like 
It was hookers on the street. It was cor- the most corrupt police in the history of America in, in New York City in the 70s. It was like a bad scenario. It was the, the, the uh, Italian mob who were trying to figure out what comes next. It, it was uh, what, New York back when New York was scary. Yeah. <laughs> it was in New York when politicians were trying to figure out, what do we do to fix this shit? This is a mess. It's awful. And... One of the things that happened based on a lot of things going on was that porn outside of like super softcore, which nobody gave a fuck about, but actual triple X porn became a salable existing thing. Like Deep Throat being the most famous big launch across the bow of like this happened and America went, we're interested and everyone went. Oh shit, what do we do? No one expected America to go, we're interested when that happened, but that's exactly what happened. And the show kind of, the first season of the show kind of ends on that point of like, hey, guess what? All that thing that used to be a sex business has totally changing now to this other thing. And you have very fascinating people involved in this, like uh, Maggie Gyllenhaal playing a older prostitute who's always worked for herself, who now is going, Hey, this porn thing, I think this is kind of like where I would like, I think this is the way that we should be going and not even her as an actress, but her going, I want to be the person who produces the shit and runs the shit. Well, it's, it's weird. Her character was both the one I rolled my eyes at in the beginning because she's a classic cooker with a heart of gold who works for herself. She has a kid who lives with her mom, but she's also the one who does exactly that goes, yeah, this is going to be good. This is There's going to be a lot of money in this business, especially when she starts talking about realizing that none of the hookers get royalties or any kind of payments off of after it's created. Right. Yeah. Um, it's There's a lot going on that feels like it's balancing some things today, but more than anything, it just does. It does feel like by the time I got the fourth or fifth episode, I was like, this is definitely by the guy who did the wire. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's very slow burn. Deep character development, characters that in any other show would be like, they're just here for one episode to be like a charismatic, crazy, extreme thing. But then you're like, wow, they actually really developed that character and made them interesting. How about one of the characters that I find semi the most interesting is this girl who quits college in the first episode. She also is the character who, at least where I am, has nothing to do with anything whatsoever. She yeah. just like happens to work at one of the the bars that one of the main characters owns, but she's still a fully fleshed out, interesting character with her own arc. Yeah, almost everybody in here is a really interesting character, and much like The Wire, you honestly don't know if somebody's going to make it to the end of any given run or oh, not. No, it's hard to predict. It's not like one of those things like someone who goes, "Oh, I'm five days toward till retirement." It's not one of those things. It's like it's very unpredictable where this thing is going to go, and I like that about it. And yeah. It's sleazy. This thing is not for the casual viewer. It's filled with not fun to watch sex scenes. I don't mean rape. I mean just like kind of grotesquely 70s-ish like hooker with their their people sex scenes that are just not supposed to be sexy. They're just business-like. What it is is the main characters are the hookers in those scenes. So we're not... It's not some girl coming in for two minutes for a sex scene. It's the John who comes in for two minutes. Yeah. Because the John that, is not a character. No. In these yeah. The one thing I will say, too, is that they do a great job of no character is a good guy or a bad guy. 
Like, uh, the whole first episode, they focus on a pimp who comes across really good, who ends up being a really terrible human being. Every character does good and bad things just as fits them at that moment. And I know we're not supposed to like James Franco right now, I guess. I, I, I'm i not entirely sure where the status of, of James Franco being abusive or not being abusive is right now. Uh, I will get back to my feelings about that when I feel like I know what's happening. But James Franco is really good playing twin brothers in this, one of which is kind of more of a down-to-earth, but not that bright guy. The other is a not-that-bright guy who's not down-to-earth at all and is makes constant mistakes and is always in trouble with the mob. Well, and the one thing I wanted to call out, too, that I actually really ended up liking about the show was they do a good job of, and this is a weird thing to comment on, but it's not just naked women. There's a no. copious amount of male nudity as well, yeah. which always wanting to see the evening of the sexes. It's nice to see a show that's like, yes, this is about sex, so you see a lot of boob and a lot of dick. Dick, 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 yes. dick. And actually to a point where I'm intrigued to see behind the scenes how they did a lot of it, because like you see Maggie Gyllenhaal sitting there having a conversation while holding the guy's dick. Uh, Gyllenhaal, who was one of the major producers on this thing, she was one of the people involved with the creation of this, is unafraid as fuck. No. She is hardcore straight up naked and grabbing dicks throughout a lot of this. And at first I'm like, this is a, I mean, I know you were in secretary, which was a very sort of like ballsy, like sort of like, uh, sex related film with nudity in it, what have you. This I'm kind of like, so where are we going to get to here? And by the end of this, I felt comfortable with it in the beginning. I did not. But you have to watch straight through to get to the end of the season to go like, okay, I feel like I have a handle on on where you're taking all this. Uh, There's a decent amount of extra stuff here. I wouldn't say a huge amount, but like it is the first season. I think there's a certain amount of standoffishness involved with making the show of like, we're not sure how much we want to say out loud about it because it is like, this is a weird period of time to do a show about sex in the 70s in New York City. Well, I'll say though... It's a cool era. I mean, it, there's a lot of horrible stuff going on, but it's so different from the way it was today that even if the show itself wasn't good, it's interesting alone just to be like, wow, this is what New York was like. There were prostitutes all over Times Square. There were theaters where people went in and hooked up. Like, this is New York. It was totally different shit. I'm old enough that I remember driving through Times Square when it was like that. Yeah. Like, I wasn't driving, but I was in a car. I, I missed the mid-90s New York where it, was, it wasn't it was completely squeaky clean, but it was still nasty. It was it was nasty. <laughs> Shit, man. I remember my uncle going, here's 20 bucks, go to Washington Square Park, uh, avoid the chicks who are wearing half shirts because they just want to fuck you, go to the, the black dudes with big afros because they are the ones with pot. And I was like, that literally his words. It was like, thanks, oh my huh? God, thanks. <laughs> it's like, if you want to buy weed, that's how you get it. It'll be fine. I know they look scary, but it's fine. But it's they're just a business. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, let's move on. John, you watched an Arrow release with me. I of, did. Of a film called Scalpel. Never heard of it. Which I never did either. But I will say uh, Judith Chapman, who plays the double uh, lead in this, I knew because I grew up in the 70s and 80s watching soap operas, and she was, like, in all of them. Oh, uh, okay. <laughs> I was like, where do I know her from? I was like, was she in another movie? No, she was just, like, in every soap opera of the 70s and 80s. She played something for five years. I recognize the lead actor, uh, Robert Lansing, who's a character actor. He's been in a ton of stuff. Uh, he... Uh, 
you know, I've I've seen him in lots of things, horror and B movies and TV shows and stuff like that. Oh yeah, um, he he's but, kind of a stalwart. Yeah, but I didn't really recognize any other any other faces in the film. Well, uh, the story as a, as it uh, such as it is, <laughs> which is it, it's Arrow trying to rescue an obscure film, it, and, as and they the, do. Yeah, and it's like to me, as De Palma is to Hitchcock, this is to De Palma. Mm-hmm. It's sort of like the copy of a copy. Uh, it's it's multiplicity for films. Yeah, and yeah. it's it, you you don't get any of the fancy De Palma camera stuff or editing stuff, but you get De Palma's kind of love of taking a small group of characters and then sort of just like stacking the twists. Uh, a lot of that reminded me of early De Palma. Absolutely. Um, uh, Lansing plays a guy who's a rich surgeon who discovers a lady who's been assaulted in a bar. Who in the end, we never see what her original face looks like. But uh, she she's terribly beaten. He's like, oh, I've got an idea. I'm going to make her face look like my daughter's, who has, as we've learned, disappeared. And we, you know, my presumption was that he had killed her or something. And she's doing all this like inheritance. Yeah, but we find out she's doing all this inheritance. And his thing is, like, literally she took off. And he's like, I just want the money. So this lady whose face is beaten is like, look, I'm not even going to charge you for all the plastic surgery or anything. Here's the deal. I will split with you this huge inheritance. I'm just going to train you to be like my daughter. I'm a major face, look like my daughter's, mm. and oh, which is... Indeed, Judith Chapman, and uh, and we'll do this. But uh, oh, guess what happens? Daughter comes back. No. Daughter reappears and goes, "Oh, hi, who's this?" And mysteriously, isn't like, "What the fuck?" That was the main problem I had. <laughs> if I had one thing overall with this movie in general, was the fact that not enough people were agog at the fact that this woman looked just like it this was other woman. Cool. Identical to the yeah. and it just seems so matter of fact. Like, oh, this is your friend Judith from the city. Okay, and I was like, but they look exactly the same. I mean, I think there's some fun to be had in this thing, but it feels like a TV movie. Ultimately, it, does. A, it feels like a good '70s television movie. It, uh, like, other than the other than the really weird psychosexual overtones that are gets, super gross, it gets way incesty. <laughs> like, which I guess is a thing now. I read Dude, it's it. not his real daughter, right? Yeah, yeah, but like. But she's, she's identical to is a thing now. But I was uh, I, <laughs> you know, oh, oh dude, it. who was um, uh, uh, Esquire did an article the uh, last week where they were like the most popular porn tag is incest right now, the by a sizable margin. Actually, I was like, I believe what it. just happened? What happened? Anyway, uh, anyway, uh, maybe that's a reaction to re-releasing this because his whole thing is like, oh, it looks just like his daughter. This girl that he put his her face on, and then they start fucking, and you're like. Wow. <laughs> so do you know anything about the story behind the two transfers? I have an assumption, but Oh, uh, that there's wh- what do you mean? There's two transfers on this on Arrow's Blu-ray and one of them is cinematographer approved and one of them is Arrow approved. The that uh, that images there that are sort of like tinted yellow and green are the ones that are cinematographer approved. If you imagine that without that kind of yellowish green hue, yeah. it just it looks quote unquote normal. So it, whites read as white as opposed to reading as yellow. It feels like an odd decision. And I think what happened, if I had to guess, I think what happened is it wouldn't surprise me if Arrow had started the cleanup process thinking that they were they were cleaning like making things look white. And that when 
it came time to like have discussions with the people was like, no, we, we intended it to look like urine. Like You're we like, wanted it to look green. Oh, fuck. And so they included both versions and both look good. You can also toggle between the two while you're watching. Um, that I did not know. Yeah, you can actually flip back and forth between the uh, between the cinematographer version and the Arrow version. Um, I watched the cinematographer version for about half of it, and I watched the Arrow version for about the other half of it. It didn't necessarily make the movie better or worse because the shots aren't composed well enough for that <laughs> that color like I, treatment to be like, like worthwhile. I said, it felt like a TV movie. Well, it can look like a yellow TV movie if you yeah. wanted to. <laughs> I, I think I just watched the original version and it never occurred to me to think about it. I was just like, okay, that's just how it looks like. There's an introduction by the director, John Grismer, who also did a couple very low budget, super forgotten about horror films. Uh, there's an, uh, a new interview uh, with John Grismer uh, that's about 14 minutes long. A uh, new interview with Janet Chapman, which actually is the one thing I watched on here. Because I, I remember watching her in soap operas. And I was like, oh, I kind of want to see what she looks like now. I was like, damn, girl, you're still beautiful. I remember having a crush on her when I was like nine years old. Yeah. <laughs> Going like, wow, you're still beautiful. And really like funny and, and talkative about like, I know this is a bad movie. But it's fun to go back and revisit. Plus, you paid me. Um, <laughs> there's an interview with the director of photographer who uh, obviously talks about those the the, the uh, yellowish decisions and then various and sundry. Well, let's move on to our next title, title which is one that I assume that some of you guys saw in the theater. No, nope. yep. And that's Thor Ragnarok. I'm sorry that I didn't get a chance to hand this off to one of you. I literally got it yesterday. Right now, Patience is like, I just took it. <laughs> it's like, I don't want to hear what happens. I'm going to say right now, have you guys have you guys both seen it? Yeah, Joe just said yes. I, did, and I picked it. it up on uh, 4K digital. This like, is in my seen. top three Marvel films. Top three. Civil War. You know, I would say no. Top five only because I just... Black Panther just kind of edged that out. I'm like Avengers, Civil War, this. Not not order even. I'm just like just those three are my three favorites. I think, but that's weird considering I think the first two Thor films are just okay. Uh, the second World one's a, not great. Dark World is the only Marvel film that I have a really difficult time revisiting. I cannot make it through Dark World a second time, mm-hmm. and I liked Dark World fine the first time. But I can't plow through it a second time, and I don't it's know It's not why. great. Yeah, you it's, don't have it's to It's a not good movie with a great production design. <laughs> I guess so. But Ragnarok, it's so weird. Our, uh, for our friend Richard Whitaker, who's on the site all the time, is the only person I know who hates this film. Yeah, but it's Richard. And, <laughs> but I'm like, I don't understand. He's like, well, it doesn't keep up with the consistency of the previous two films. It's like, no one wants them to keep up with the consistency of the previous two films. But nothing about this is in any way denies anything from the continuity of those. It's Taika Watiti who did the absolute fucking masterpiece What We Do in the Shadows. Sorry. One of the greatest comedies of the last ten years. That's why I did Little Fang Hiss. Yeah, yeah, there's no contention on this end. So. Yeah. Uh, who they? I can't believe that we're at the point where multi-hundred million dollar films get guys like him to go, why don't you do this? And going, maybe Thor should be a comedy, and they're absolutely right. It should be. And uh, Do you think it was reactionary to be, like, Guardians of, of the Midgar? Like- no, but I, I love Guardians. I think this is better than both Guardians films. Ooh, I really do. Actually, I agree with you on that point. Yeah, I, I mean, Guardians are great. This is... And maybe it's because we're so already established with a lot of these characters, and it saves some of them. 
You know, I felt its tone very much, and I know you and I are both fans of like the Giffen, Dimitrius, McGuire era Justice League. Yeah, and I found it very much in that vein. It was probably the closest a film has come to feeling like that particular style of comic, where it is funny, but the threats are still serious, and like there's still pathos and there's still like drama, even even when people are being like out and out hilarious. And it was, it, I like that it scratched that itch of those late 80s, early 90s Justice League comics for me, which I, I realize we're talking Marvel versus DC. But it totally did. But it, it, it captured that, and I love those comics. I mean, certainly Marvel is, like, uh, there's a lot of this that feels almost kind of Bendis-y mm-hmm. as well, with that sort of, like, oh, everybody's kind of wisecracking, everybody is sort of mildly meta-referencing things that have happened before. But there's visually a lot of Jack Kirby stuff going on, and the bonus features talk about it a lot. And I didn't really realize it until they were going, look at this frame in the bonus features. Like, holy shit, that is totally Kirby. And and the director was like, I considered this movie to be like, nobody in none of the Marvel films have really done a tribute to Kirby yet. And I wanted this to be a tribute to Jack Kirby as a film, visually. I was like, I get that. But what Watiti is such a freak show in the best possible way, you watch all the bonus features on here with him just strut around being a weirdo. And in fact, playing one of the characters in the film, one of the best characters in this whole (laughs) film, Korg, the giant rock monster guy. He's like, Hey, why don't we all just get along guy uh, with a New Zealand accent? (laughs) I, I, I'm like, I want what he did to direct every single movie Marvel does that so, it has a comedy aspect from now on. My only complaints about the movie at all really is Kate Blanchett as the villain, despite looking good and Kate Blanchett doing a good job with it. I just felt like they didn't do enough yeah. with her. She's underwritten. Yeah, yeah I totally agree. But totally I, agree. I would have liked more of her in it. Uh, that being said, though, it still contains both my favorite use of the immigrant song ever. Oh, it's so great. There's a sequence with Thor and another character who I won't name for spoiler reasons taking out spaceships, and it is the coolest, most badass Thor moment I have seen in any Marvel film so far. Just say, back to the immigrant thing, there's a sequence where he is, it's taken from a distance with him flying towards a group of people that are kind of building into a, like, a, a, a... a, a group against him on a, on the Rainbow Bridge with Immigrant Song blasting that is like, it just gives me the chills it every time man, I watch spoiler it. Spoiler alert! It's, it's, it's the best music cue Just such year. a great shot that I'm like, oh my god, that's amazing. Uh, th- there's so much here that I really love. I just... Uh, I get that people are like, wait, wait, but Thor was so serious before. Why is he being... Well... He was only serious in Thor films. In the Avengers films, he was not really terribly serious. He was funny. This is the Thor from the Avengers films. He's funny in the first Thor. At With the, him waking up in the hospital, not knowing where he is, and like wrecking the hospital, and then the coffee where he's like demanding more and all that kind of stuff. Like, I, I, lo- I love that you're finally getting like him and Loki getting a sort of comedy routine together, and him and Banner. Who is who is uh, uh what's his name? Not Eric Bana, but um, uh, Mark Ruffalo. Mark Ruffalo the whole time, getting this constant like routine going on. This is kind of a like a buddy comedy type of thing, except with multiple buddies. Well, and they somehow work in the 
the ultimate Tony Stark. Oh, yeah, yeah, that is something that he would have when uh, Banner has to wear Tony Stark's clothes. Right. It's that it's that 80s, like, Art Deco print of the lady with the lipstick. And I'm like, right. of course, of course that would be Tony Stark's shirt. Uh, there's a lot of extras here, and one of the most famous that has actually gotten a lot of press here is that Taika Waititi did a uh, commentary track here where he mentions a lot of, like, big stuff in here, like the character of Surtur, uh, who is the big fiery demon, is voiced by Clancy Brown, but was motion captured by Taika Waititi himself, which is very funny to me. The Doctor Strange sequence, which is kind of um, fucking amazing. In fact, it's so amazing they used it in the trailers, where they were like, they were just like, here's just the Doctor Strange sequence. Well, it, it'll it's make flat you want out to watch the post credit scene from uh, Doctor Strange. It really is. Yeah, it's like, oh, the exact shot's cool. Uh, uh, it was filmed in London, uh, eight to nine months pr- prior that whole sequence, like the entire sequence, they filmed all of that. We saw bits of it there. But that whole thing here was actually done ahead of time. Uh, the synth music was a big part of the world of Zakar by Mark Mothersborough, who really... I thought the score is one of my favorite things about this movie. I really, really, really loved it. Uh, Watiti, Taika Watiti designed uh, Valkyrie uh, wrist tattoo and several aspects of her clothing. Uh, once again... The, this actress is so wonderful and why she doesn't get to do more. I'm just like, Tessa Thompson yeah. is so good. Uh, the unique lighting design of the battle between Hell and the Valkyries uh, is really unique. Designed by Stu Rutherford, who starred in Watiti's What We Do in the Shadows uh, with the bullet time effect of these long shadows that was done with strobe lights. Mark Ruffalo wears the Patrick Nagel album cover for Duran Duran's Rio with Tony Stark's clothes, which I think is hysterical. And the original North myth, Norse myth of Ragnarok includes Surtur as taking part in the destruction of our Asgard. Uh, this is all stuff that come up during the commentary. Honestly, these all sound kind of dry, but when you listen to it with Watiti's being hysterical, because ultimately he's an actor and comedian who just so happens to be a pretty good writer-director as well. So... There you go. But there's a lot of bonus features on here that are way worth your time. There's a series of featurettes that are pretty funny. There's a new Team Daryl uh, skit, which is about Thor's roommate Daryl, who now is living with Jeff Goldblum as the Grandmaster. Uh, there's a short look at the first ten years, the evolution of heroes, which is kind of how we got here. All of these things at this point have that sort of thing. There's a series of deleted scenes that I didn't feel like added a whole lot. There's, I mean, it's worth watching, but it's it, it, there's nothing you go, whoa! And there's the weirdest storyboard sequence I've ever seen in my entire life, where instead of doing traditional storyboards, they had their people do them as 8-bit video game sequences for the action scenes in here. We're like, oh, here's the way in which this action scene is going to work, using like as if it had been on an old Nintendo. So, with music and all... Like, oh, yeah, at this point, they'll come in and they sample in lines from the movie to go, this is the point where this happens. It's like, okay, is that really what happened or are they just putting that here for our benefit? I don't know. All right, let's move on and go to... Shit, I clicked on mm-hmm, stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, yeah, I, oh, Joe, Eagle. are you judging me? Uh, let's go to Black Eagle, which is Joe. God yeah, damn I am Black Eagle. That's well, true. <laughs> I'm really curious to know because you seem like the kind of guy who might... No, it was shitty. Okay, Because, <laughs> like, it's a Jean-Claude Van Damme film, and you seem like one of those guys who might be like, I fucking love Van Damme. Well, I, m- I met him when I was a kid. Did you Yeah, because really? I was, a, like, a, a pretty involved martial artist. And so, like, my my sensei was uh, a big guy in the martial arts community, and so all of his friends would come around. And when, when fucking muscles from Brussels sprouted up, you know, he made the rounds, too. And 
He really was as big as a, uh, of a dick as you think he would be at that time. Really? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> but I hear he's a nice guy now. Well, good. I'm I'm pretty sure that years of failure and obscurity has kind of done that to him. Probably well, getting off the cocaine and heroin too. And this, yeah. And this is an early film. It's 1988. It's it's like a company that's putting out. Like stuff that they're like, remember seeing this and never renting it when you were a kid? <laughs> you know, like, you know. That's kind of their whole premise of like, remember when this came out and you were always like, maybe I'll rent that at some point, but you remember seeing it on the shelf. We're like, I'm pretty sure Ron Sheer talked about this. Yeah, it's MVD Rewind Collection. Sometimes they put out stuff I really, I was the guy who rented it and liked it. This was not one of them. Maybe I was just not into the whole Seagal, no, it's Van Damme, like, what have so you. So like my, yeah. my my lambasting of him aside, this is just a shitty movie. <laughs> well, that's the only thing I can really think to to like recommend this at all is a kind of like what were you doing? Interesting level was that Jean Claude Van Damme was not supposed to be in this originally. It was like a very generic Shogashugi movie, and a producer was like. Do we need something more for American audiences? Because yeah, this is an American film. Bizarre. And they're like, oh, well, like, uh, this guy, Jean-Claude Van Damme, he's very good looking. He's very talented. He, he had one film, I forget what it was before this, that where, where it was like, oh, it kind of had a, he had some, like, people were talking about him. Let's put him in here. It's like, yeah, but he's like the flunky to the villain. And they're like, Okay, well, let's just build a lot of extra scenes for him and give him a relationship, yeah, with which the, with, gives him considerably more character development than the primary character yeah, with in the, the with film. Yeah, with a chick with a cool bob haircut. Yeah, I'm just like, wait, is this movie not about Van Damme? Because it's not. It's, it's about Shokasugi, but there's no way to give a fuck. It's about, about single dads cannot get quality time with their kids. They're, they always be working. I, I guess that it kind of is, <laughs> but it really does feel like you're watching it. Like, wow, all of the Van Damme stuff feels, feels very added in. Even the action, the big fights with him between Kasugi. Which are awful. Are awful. <laughs> are just so fucking bad. They're, they're a step below uh, slap fighting in the schoolyard. Oh, my God. They're just like, how are you, how are you this, how are you a big star? <laughs> how is either one of you a big star when your fights are this, like, well, underthought? I- like that just goes to show you need a good choreographer to I don't know think about things. I I guess so, but uh, we're at that point now. Anything that brings you back to some level of nostalgia is worth re-releasing. Sometimes with the, uh, HD Blu-ray, 1080p version of this thing, um, uh, and there's two different cuts. Oh my god, I feel silly just saying it on here. <laughs> a 93-minute theatrical version and a 104-minute uncut extended version, which I'm assured no one needs watch. But, yeah, no, I I, I I made that choice like. I went for the, the 93. One. Yeah, exactly. Uh, the one thing I will say I did watch was some interviews with Shokasugi, who has been in some movies that I like. Mm-hmm. And he gives an interesting and kind of fun interview on here for about 21 minutes just talking about his career and things he's done. I was like, okay, Kasugi's interesting. Why he chose to do that for this particular release, I can't tell you, but, you know. <laughs> okay. And there's a 35-minute making of this movie, but honestly, if you've seen that... If you've sat and you rented this and you watched that, I think it's over for you. Yeah, it's it's kind of like huffing paint for too long. You just at this point, you should just give up. Mm-hmm. Like if you watch that, I don't know what's wrong with you. Huffing paint for too long. Yeah, is there an amount of paint huffing that is generally okay? Yeah, enough, so, you'll know when you hit it. Yeah, exactly. enough yeah. to sit all the way through our next movie, which is Tom Jones. Oh my gosh! Which is a of all things a Criterion release. Look, sometimes. Things change enough 
that there's just no way to connect with them anymore. And I suspect this is one of those things. Am I wrong, Aaron? No. So uh, this felt a lot like watching that Woody Allen movie a while back where it's like, you know, I acknowledge that I'm sure at one point this was really good. Yeah. I, I did laugh at a few scenes. Yeah. But everything just went on way, way too long. Way too long. You could cut 20 minutes out of this movie without in any way, shape, or form affecting the plot or characters. Yeah. It's just a- by like, like oh, they're going to go hunting for wild animals with dogs. That's a 15-minute scene of them just riding around on horses with dogs. Oh, my God. Never ending. And oh it, God. there's a bunch of meal sequences where every time they eat, it's just the most disgusting eating you've ever seen. Oh, yeah, well, that and is it goes famous. on for minutes. Now, that is famous. That sequence you're talking about was one of those things, even at the time, people were discussing it, like going, ew, what the fuck? <laughs> like, this, it, it, people were like drooling while they're eating, yeah. going like, what the it, hell? It's something that where you're like, you know, you're trying to say something here. I know you are, but I don't know what it is anymore. Dude, I don't, I don't have a clue. It's an adaptation of a novel, The History of Tom Jones, a foundling from the year 1749. So by definition, maybe not translating oh. that well as well. This is a British film. Uh, this is the, but the new Criterion release with Albert Finney, the one thing I found interesting was watching this almost like Albert Finney. I've seen a lot of stuff when he was older, but as a young man, I'm like, I just kept my brain kept disconnecting going. Is that? That's uh, Albert Finney. He, he kept looking like uh, he was the main character. He was Tom Jones, right? Yeah. He kept looking like Joel Edgerton to me. And yet this won four <laughs> Academy <laughs> Awards, including Best Picture. This won Best Picture. <laughs> no. Best Picture. No, so if you're pissed that. about anything that won Best Picture anytime recently, maybe you should go back and watch and, Tom Jones and go, what the fuck? And like, I got to admit, it was really fun to watch a... <laughs> 17th century body comedy. Yeah. Because the music is very anecdotal. It doesn't really make sense compared for what we normally see. They shoot it really interesting for this kind of a movie. But that does not make up for it. Like, the the pacing is so bad that at one point I sat there and went, oh, like, this is the climax of the movie, right? It felt right. It was ending. We're good. It was 30 minutes in. It was just like, it's the end of the first act. And I yeah. legit thought the movie was over. This guy who's like a bastard who plays the lead character is like adopted by this family and like swick, quickly switches to him being full grown. And like, I, I'm not even sure I entirely followed the plot. I think oh, I, God, I, and I don't think it's the movie's fault. I think, well, it is, but that I just, my sheer boredom at points get me well, fading in and out of like, I just don't give a fuck. Right. There are highlight moments, but like watching him, like, like a bunch of sex comedy, so, but I, as if we were being artistic and serious. About I, I think it. I kind of got the plot. Question: Did you watch the director's cut or the regular, or the other cut? I don't remember so, whichever one was shorter. The director's cut. That's the one I watched okay. too. So yeah, uh, he is a bastard son who they they don't know who his father is, so he just gets prescribed a father, and the landowner decides to raise him as his own son. Then, as an adult, he is basically sleeping with the poor, like, slutty lady in town. Yeah. But also trying to romance the daughter of the rich neighbor. Yeah, the hot, and, the, the hot love interest who should, who immediately keeps forgiving him with fucking everybody but, else he comes across. So, the <laughs> end of the first act that I thought was the end of the movie, uh, he gets found out and he gets banished and... 
so continues to be a comedy of errors where he keeps trying to do the wrong, the right thing and everyone just assumes he's doing the wrong thing, which involves him potentially sleeping with his mother, accidentally yeah. saving someone from being killed and robbed a couple of times. And everywhere he goes, he does this, like he'll be a hero and save someone's life. And then everyone's like, oh yeah, he was actually trying to rob that guy. And then he maybe raped that woman too. There's obviously a lot of social commentary here, but most of it is lost on our generation, yeah. and I found it overlong and dull. So how did it handle that time that he uh, banged Elvira? <laughs> I don't think it did at all, to oh, be fair. But that would have been a better film. If I, I got to admit, that I, when you handed this to me, I thought this was about like Tom Jones, Tom Jones the singer, and was really disappointed to yeah. discover it wasn't. I was like... That's so fun. A Criterion Collection movie about Tom Jones? This has to be fun. It's not unusual to be handed this Well, because he did bang Elvira. I I know. Um, There's not a huge amount of bonus features here. But I think part of that is that American audiences are kind of like, this is more of a matter of curiosity than anyone is looking at as like a real classic anymore. It's what happens sometimes with Criterion. Because they're doing, and I put this in quotes, important films... You know, there are the movies that they come out with that are actually legitimately great films, and then they come out with movies like this, which I'm sure when it came out, it was important and influential, but when you look at it with a modern context where the decisions they made aren't shocking anymore, yeah, it's just boring. Well, let's uh, move on. John, you yes. were like, I was I was thrilled you were excited to watch this set, because I was worried that, you, that everybody would be like, I don't want to see that. Because when I watched this two disc, uh, uh, like four movie set, I was like waiting for these to be terrible. And then I was like, wow, all of these are really kind of good. Of Hammer's four movie set, two on each one, of films I was unfamiliar with outside mm-hmm. of one that I knew from a Misfits song title that yeah. referenced it. Um, but to start with, just in this segment, uh, two of them here, uh, we are, we got, uh, Maniac, which is also which was known better in America as Fanatic. Oh no, that's a. Uh, oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, no, you're that's right. Die, die, my darling. Yeah, yeah. It's, I'm sorry. Die, die, my darling. The Misfits one, and then uh, the film Maniac, which was, I guess, known by Maniac, um, which was more. I felt like it was more of a French movie for sure. It has a little bit more of an international flavor than than Hammer stuff typically has. But uh, both of these are. Reasonably solid little thrillers for something that came before the kind of Hammer revolution of horror with mm-hmm. actors like Christopher Lee and Peter Cushing and Peter Hammer Cushing. basically did three types of movies in their heyday. One was the monster stuff, which everybody's familiar with. Uh, the other was the Carry On series, which is uh, almost like parody films, which they did a ton of like uh, Carry On Screaming was their horror parody, but there's all these Carry On movies. I have not uh, watched those. Yeah. And then there's the like quasi-Hitchcock sort of films, um, which are these the, these two double-feature Blu-rays sort of represent uh, that era. And both of the double-feature discs, I think, have one movie that's, like, well worth seeing and one that's, like, okay. Yeah. Uh, in this I case, I thought Maniac was the one that was okay. Yeah. Um, it's all around well-made, but it's plot, which involves... Um, a guy getting kind of manipulated into a situation where they're going to get this woman's husband out of an insane asylum. Um, the plot gets too convoluted for its own good. I felt like it, it wasn't even that it was that intricate. It was, it felt 
you ever watch something and it feels like why why does this feel more complicated than it should be? Like this does feel that way. Yeah, and yeah. something about the way Maniac is set up, and I think a lot of it has to do with character motivations. That the stuff happens because the plot calls for it to happen, but it doesn't come from the actual characters themselves, which which then leaves you as the viewer trying to fill in those blanks yourself. Well, maybe they're doing it because of this, and maybe they're doing it because of that. It is a pretty makes film. it feel a little more complicated. It is a pretty film, though. Mm-hmm. It's a it's a really attractive yeah. looking film. But that being said, it's it seems appropriately uh, balanced with with Die Die My Darling slash Fanatic. Uh, which is an even prettier film, but also has that same sort of sense of like, look at this. It's all about location, mm-hmm. you know, and you get and this one has the benefit of some pretty big name actors. in it. This actually sent me down a rabbit hole because I'd heard about I'd heard the name Tallulah Bankhead, but had I don't think I had ever watched one of her movies or wasn't super familiar because you're I not went, 120 years old. Right. And so I went, <laughs> oh, I'm going to find out more about Tallulah Bankhead. And in doing so, I found out this crazy story that. Before the film came out, uh, it was called Fanatic, and there was a bunch of press about the fact that they called her in to loop a line of dialogue, and the line of dialogue was Die, Die, My Darling, and it took eight hours for them to loop that one line of dialogue, and that hit all the trades back in the day. And so they renamed the movie Die, Die, My Darling because it was almost like the early 60s version of a meme. Yeah. She ended up suing because (laughs) she felt like they were trying to embarrass her and make fun of her over the fact that they retitled the movie to this incident that she became infamous for. When you actually watch the movie, it's one of those things you would never really like. Dude, think of that being a big thing and if it, you'd never heard of it. And it doesn't that. end there. They made a Broadway yeah. play about the eight-hour recording session of the line, Die, Die, My Darling. Are you fucking kidding called me? Called Looped. And Stephanie Powers, who plays the young woman in this, got the chance to play Tallulah Bankhead in... The play looped. Wait, you're serious? I'm 100. There's a serious. play about her. There's a play about the ADR for Fanatic. <laughs> That's insane. Yeah, I want to see it. Yeah, I kind of so, want to see it now. Too. I, yeah, but it was like it was. I was literally rabbit holing <coughs> down all this information because it all started from like, oh, I don't know much about Tallulah Bankhead, and then I would read something and be like, okay, wait a minute, what? Well, okay, wait a minute, what? She was like a silent movie actress who was a big deal back in her day, and this one, where way past the point where she was she, a big deal. Well, anymore. this is also stunt casting because she was famous for being in her day. She was kind of like, uh, like Madonna, Madonna's heyday. Like okay. Tallulah Bankhead, everything she said was like. Uh, very, very sexual, and sh- the Hayes, uh, the Hayes Code singled her out as a specific actress that people should avoid. Um, wow. Okay. So it, she had, there's a great quote from her when I was looking this stuff up that she wasn't bisexual; she was ambisextrous, which I thought was <laughs> was I'm really like, great. What does that even mean? I don't know, <laughs> but I um, like it. But so this this movie also is stunt casting because she plays like an old <clears throat> religious fanatic dowager who's like. Uh, so moralistic and so hardline, uh, you know, gospel that the the mere casting of her was sort of an in joke. Ironic, it was, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, That's crazy. I didn't know about any of this. Yeah, uh, there's a lot of things about this to like, other than that. Even with, oh yeah, um, uh, I, I Stephanie Powers plays an American who is getting married to her lover uh, in London. And it's like, look, I was engaged to somebody else who had died in an automobile accident who lives, but her family lives here. I feel like I should go there and visit them. That's still a little bankhead. What she doesn't realize is said woman is 
totally psychotic. Yes. Uh, uh, and, and like really deeply religious. He was like, no, you can't be with anyone else because if you are, then my son doesn't get to be with you in heaven. So she holds her prisoner in their house to do it, which is a bit of a spoiler, but come on. This came out in the 60s. Um, and with the series of like their relationship with the servants and Donald fucking Sutherland playing like a – what's the term we're – what are we allowed to use? We can't say retarded anymore. What is the word we can say? He's playing the David like, Warner role from Straw Dogs. There you go. There's, yes. <laughs> he's he's the, playing he's, David Warner from Straw Dogs. He's like an assistant who works in the yard. He wears coveralls and has like a haystack for a hair. And uh, yeah, he's uh, – <laughs> He's of a he's of a type. You will say, "Holy shit, that's Donald Sutherland." Yeah, <laughs> I don't know. I actually really had a great time watching this movie. I did too. I think it, I think it runs out of things to do in the last thirty minutes. Uh, but that that first hour is, I think, really really crackling and and one of Hammer's better non monster movies. Uh, I really enjoyed it. Agreed. Well, let me say real quickly, this just is not a thing that's out on Blu-ray quite yet. It will be out in April, but it is av- available on VOD from director, and I always say his name. Uh, John, can you help me out here? I always say Ted's name, last name wrong. Uh, he's a really is cool guy. We, huh? Is it Gohagen? I don't... I've heard people say multiple things. I need to ask him in person. I've actually hung out with him in person, and I always forget to say, please tell me how to pronounce your name. Um but just do it phonetically and just G-O-G-Han. G-O-G, yeah, exactly. Uh, he did... I, just guarantee you mess it up. Do it spectacularly. He's one of those guys who like has been a rep in film for a while, who handles other people's releases. But he did a film I really, really, really liked... Uh, uh, what was it? We are, we are, we are. Is that what it was? That's not his. We are, we are. We are. No, we are still still here. here. I really enjoyed this film and recommended a little ghost movie with Barbara Crampton. This was a very strange take. This film called Mohawk, where it was like it's a horror movie from the viewpoint of Native Americans in the period of time when the French and the English and the Americans were all kind of battling, and the Native Americans were kind of stuck in the middle. Of all of this, no one was really sure who was on anyone's side, and it's like uh, a, a, a a brother and sister who are end up in a situation where they end up where they have to deal with a lot of incredibly gory violence to get re- first off just to survive and then to get revenge. And I, it, it's this is odd because. It's playing itself as sort of a historical film at first, but in a very indie sense. And then it's so incredibly gory and graphic that you're like, this is clearly a horror film. Not entirely sure who this was made for, but uh, I had fun watching. Huh? Probably for Ted Geoghan. Uh, maybe, if, assuming that's how hey. he pronounces his name. Yeah. yeah, That might just be his cup of tea, because his ghost movie, if it's the one I'm thinking of, that was actually pretty gory, too. Oh, right? yeah, no, he likes gory it stuff, was... and that's not weird for a film that's out now, a horror movie anyway. It's a ghost. It's like a house is possessed with killer ghosts. This is a land is possessed with, like, people who probably should be left, like, undisturbed to live there. So I don't know what to say, but it ends up with some some of the most graphic and really realistic gore I've seen in quite some time. I think Ted's a decent director who, when he gets, uh, when people realize that, like, and give him more of a budget, he'll be that much more interesting. Uh, Mohawk is a ballsy move. Uh, 
I'm not sure if I think it's a great movie or not, but I genuinely did enjoy watching it. I think if it's one of those films that may skip past your notice if you're a horror fan and because it's not advertising itself that uh, that way in any way, but it is pretty much ends up being a horror movie by the end. And I think it's worth your notice. So let's move on to uh, a film that a lot of you have seen. In fact, all, all everyone in this room may have seen. Has everybody yep. seen this? I've never seen Ichi. What? Yeah. Well, I don't know if you say that's good or bad, but Joe probably say it's bad because this is one of Joe's um, favorite movies. Yeah. Ichi the Killer. Ichi. It's the first Takashi Miike film I ever saw was this. And I think it was for a lot of people. Second for me behind Q the Visitor, which Visitor was Q. Visitor Q. Q. Yeah. Which not a good movie to be your first meet, uh, Mikkei movie. That was the one that made me into a fan. So that was the well, one. Well, the, I mean, <laughs> yeah, like, but, he, he had uh, done a bunch of different stuff, but this was really, like, what solidified his early reputation as the hip-hop director of Japan. All right, I'm going to let you tell the story. I also have to pee real quick, okay. so I'm going to let so, you do it, because you probably know this better than I do. You've seen this a bunch. Yeah, well, we're mostly going to talk about Chris Peeing, and, okay, like, good. why is why is it taking so long? Well, because I have razor blades everywhere. Okay, well, that's And fitting. it's really painful. <laughs> All right. So, uh, if, for those who haven't seen it, uh, it Chris would probably say, "Tell the story the way it's supposed to be." But really, what Tell it is, the story kind of follows uh, a rather awkward um, assassin and his wacky hijinks, all while kind of going through this uh, whodunit <laughs> that. Uh, Man, I'm just there's just so much to say. It's it's hard to to get started. Basically, a, ma, uh, a yakuza boss gets killed. His uh, his right hand man is very sad that he got killed and very much wants to find out who killed him. So in reality, this is a love story between a guy and 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 his now deceased boss. Well, You've seen it. So yeah, I was going to say that that's the thing that interests me is when I saw this originally, and I actually recommended this to someone last week. Uh, tentatively, <laughs> but uh, the ma- it's almost like the main character isn't really Ichi. No, it's not definitely character. not. It's instead the it's guy whose name I'm completely... Kakihara. Kakihara, who is a heavy-duty sadomasochist. Yeah. Loves to cause pain in others and in himself. And, and he loves tempura. Is I mean, he the iconic character that's on the front of the package? Yes, He's he the one on yes. the cover. So Which Ichi is not the... No, no that is not, not Ichi. No. Ichi, Ichi is, is a, this really meek guy who really doesn't truly become a presence until later on. Right. It, 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 he's, he's mostly just kind of a means to an end that also is severely psychologically damaged. As are most people in this movie, he just handles it poorly. Yeah, everybody's psychologically damaged in a way that's like culturally appropriate for this film. Except for him, who's not, but he is much more dangerous like than anyone else is. Well, so he is like 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 a complete freak show who when he gets upset almost instantly a slaughters <laughs> to the point of anyone near him within seconds to like turns them to a red mist like so so fast with like like razors that come out of his ankle boots and stuff uh, for reasons that are unexplained but this is Mike early Mike and that's the way well, shit I mean, like that this was is. also a, a manga yeah. well, okay so. well, yeah. say is this feels like Mike starting to play with making, uh, I don't want to say more legitimate movies because his grindhousey ones are still legitimate, but yeah. where it's still 
potentially one of the goriest movies I've ever seen. It's gruesome. But having said that, it has a really compelling story. Well, and and so, uh, you know, uh, Mike is often the, the spotlight in American audiences as far as like, oh, this movie, it was a Mike movie, but... Uh, from my point of view, like part of what was so great about it was it was really the, the first kind of Western exposure to Tadanobu Sano, who plays Kakihara, uh, who unfairly can be uh, uh, likened as like a Japanese Johnny Depp. But that's an unfair comparison because this, like this dude is just amazingly talented and he can play... Stupid, wacky characters. Uh, he can just do super great. Oh, he's the guy who plays Hogan in the Thor movies. Yes, he does. Okay. Uh, he, um, what? Yeah. Yeah. Oh my God, you're right. Yeah. So, uh, Last Life in the Universe is uh, just tangentially a movie that I will I will say that everybody should watch, which was a Japanese Thai joint mm, picture. Not seen that, so that's really good. So yeah, but so I wouldn't have been on the lookout for this dude if it wasn't for this movie. <laughs> well, it, you know, it's, it's funny how much they used to lean into the Mickey-ness of it. I remember I owned this on DVD a while back, and the DVD actually came in a packet of fake blood. And it was the worst <laughs> DVD I've ever bought. That's bizarre. Because it's a it bad scratch every yeah. time you pulled it in and out. But it looked cool because it came in a little packet of blood. I mean, I feel like this is one of those movies, like, I just, I want to warn people, this is like uh it's distressing to watch this film. It's there's a lot of rape and violence against women in this thing, but it is so batshit insane, like over the top that you're kind of watching this to see where Mike yeah. got his start. Well, then, and you're you're watching it because Kakihara is a fashion plate. Well, yeah, every one is. of his, his outfits you will go out and buy. It's true. That's I true. I have to point out that the title of this movie appears in a puddle of semen. Yes, it does. Yes. When it starts, it's like a dude jerking off outside of watching somebody like beat and rape a woman. And then this guy was like, oh, we thought he was going to save her. It's like, nope, he jacked off outside the window and watched. And And the title raises out of his dropped semen on the ground. You're like, oh, 90s Mika. That's the exact exact same opening as Cheaper by the Dozen, too. Exactly. Only in a metaphorical sense. (laughs) And the the main character, too has pulled a joker and has before the movie ever starts cut his his uh lips and mouth all the way back to the jawbone and then has them held together with like little earrings yeah his little ring takes off a couple there's a times. wonderfully absurd sequence where like he takes him off and he dude punches him in the face and he's just got his whole arm yeah. in his face and is chewing on it and i was like but, it's so absurd but it's kind of awesome but, like it's it's actually a good movie. Like, I feel like you could... Yeah, that needs to be stressed. It's, it's like, one of yeah. those things where if you took the extreme violence out of it, it could still be an, really still be an interesting stuff. story. <laughs> but it just, it still has characters pouring boiling up. Well, damn, I'm, I hate that you're and, saying this now because I thought I was going to go, oh, you're talking smack, but you had to watch Hangman. Oh, <laughs> oh my God. Okay, actually, so you watch this too, right? I did, so yeah. Answer me a question. Did this take place in New Orleans? I Where be- did this take place? Be- I, I say that because Al Pacino was in this, and one of two things has occurred. Either A, he was playing someone from New Orleans, and nobody mentioned that in the movie, or that dude has had a stroke, and 
I I don't know whether to laugh at his performance or feel bad for him. No, as a I, human being. I think Pacino only will take roles with directors who'll let him do whatever the fuck he's never done before. <laughs> you know, at this point where he's like, I don't give a shit. Give me a check, but only if I can just do some weird accent I've never done before in a really extreme way or something that's really different because, yeah, here he's got this extreme accent. You're like, this is awkward and uncomfortable yeah. oh, and- to watch. And it's like watching the worst like local theater version of Seven you've ever seen. Is I was going to say, in the is. beginning, I was kind of interested in it. It has Brittany Snow in it as a reporter who's doing a special on what it's like to be a police officer who is giving insane amounts of access. Uh, <laughs> Carl Urban as a cop and Al Pacino as his retired ex-cop friend. Who for some reason is there all the and, time. Yeah, the... They just go on an investigation together. The police have no problems with him investigating a serial killer with a not cop and a <laughs> reporter. And, like, it starts interesting and gets dumber and dumber and dumber and dumber, 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 dumber. It just, it's one of those, I was giving it a chance for a while because I like yep. the cast. Even though Al Pacino, once again, is clearly just at this in the I don't give a fuck anymore part of his career. You know, it's like, I don't care if anybody likes this or not. I just wanted to always try this and see what would happen. Uh, but everybody else seems like they're at least trying. Even the director, who's really visually trying to give this some flair. Sort of. This but- thing that is, like, really dumb serial killer who's obsessed with giving the cops puzzles. Like, the Riddler, like, like oh. mechanic of things, which, like, has only been done right ever in the movie seven. So, and here th- is like just laughably bad. Have John, this John hold on, hold on. Oh, John sorry. is dying. I just, Oh no, I, I noticed. So a while back, there was a bit of news that Saban who does like power Rangers and stuff, were going to try to make legit films. And I never knew what became of that. And my memory was just jogged when I saw that a distributor on this film was Saban. Yeah. Yeah. yeah th- this, this is what they, here do. you go. That's uh, what you end up well, with, John. Well, I, I made it halfway through before I realized that technically, you can actually view this movie as a film adaptation of the game Hangman, and it works in that manner, technically. Wow. And that's about how good this movie actually is. <laughs> no, there, no one, I don't think that, like, like Hasbro or anybody owns the rights to Hangman, no. which is a shame. Somebody yeah. would have made an extra dime if that was the case. Yeah, but Rihanna then, will be in it. It's like every time, yeah, right? Every time the killer leaves another body, there's like he has on the wall the Hangman thing with more letters filled yeah. in. And, and you're and like, they, they have to guess what the next one's going to be. N- and none of it makes sense. Like, I got to the end of this, and I was like, none of that made sense. Well, and once you realize who the, the killer is it's it's oh yeah it's that minor character from some other random part of the movie that completely makes a large section of the movie useless yep and even that actor it's that i don't feel bad spoiling this because he's you will not know him but it's the guy from uh, across the universe who went to vietnam and it was fun seeing him in the movie again i actually like him in other stuff like everyone else, he does a terrible job in this movie, and he is completely wasted. Yeah, I can't recommend Hangman. It's kind of a mess. I love that uh, one of the sites I go to regularly to uh, just to have up for research is Blu-ray.com, which I think is actually an excellent site. But I love that their one-word review is H-O underscore underscore I-B-L-E. <laughs> I was like, yeah, that pretty much nails it. This is indeed horrible. And I apologize to you, Aaron, on a very deeply personal level for making you watch this film. I accept your apology. Well, thank you. That's very sweet of you. Let's move on to something that was better than that. 
which we're going back to John here for the other Hammer set, which was uh, on one disc, the two movie set, Never Take Candy from a Stranger and Scream of Fear. Now, uh, Never Take Candy from a Stranger is one of those originally Britishly uh, called Never Take Sweets from a Stranger. When it first started, I was like, oh, Jesus Christ, this is one of these, like, British, uh, it's a British version of that, like, um, things that you would have shorts of in the beginning of Mystery Science Theater. Like, this is edutainment things. But as it goes along, I'm like, oh, this is really kind of good. Yeah. And by the end, I was like, god damn, when did this come out? (laughs) Like, it's like 40 years ahead of its time, this Mm -hmm. movie. I'm like, this has got good performances. It's got... It's dealing with some ballsy subjects, and consequently, it was completely panned when it came so out. Is this like the unironic good version of Reefer Badness? No, no. This is a, this is a story of uh, uh, a town in Canada where there's a guy who is like the wealthiest family in town, and they own all the property and all the buildings, and they basically own places where people work and that sort of stuff. And the patriarch of the family is an old pervert, and these two little girls go off to play, and he makes them uh, strip down and dance in front of him naked. Yeah. And then it becomes, that that incident then becomes a, a major talking point between the adult characters, some of who feel that nobody should rock the boat because it's going to affect everybody's livelihood if this guy goes down. Um, the yeah. kids, the story that the kids have, have told uh, the validity of that story comes into play. Um, a good chunk of the movie is dev- is devoted to a courtroom drama uh, in which uh, the little girl is put on the stand uh, against the the pervert. Which is the um, excellent courtroom yeah. sequence. It's really really bleak. Uh, it's a really bleak child abuse movie, and it and it covers every possible aspect of the way someone would react to that situation, whether it's, you know, the father who immediately is like, if I hear that he laid a hand on him, I'm going to kill him, to the grandmother who's like, we don't know, we weren't there, we're only going off of what a child says, we can't trust. It's interesting that they're very hyperbolic performances, but every character in here are incredibly realistic as people who Mm -hmm. would be part of this scenario, who are part of this scenario, because this is... One of the most prescient films I've seen in a long time. Like, you watch this now. If you were to remake this film right now almost word for word, Mm -hmm. just with different styles of performances, you would never guess this was a remake. Yeah. You know? Yeah. It's When when they released it on DVD, probably, I feel like it's been about eight years or so since it first came out. Maybe a little longer since it first came out on DVD. Um, I was really surprised by it. And it is one of Hammer's non-monsters that I've gone back to a couple times since then. And my girlfriend actually watched it with me today. Uh, and she'd, she'd watched everything. This was the last one because I'd seen it before where I thought, I'll watch it if I, if I have enough time. And I did. Um, and so she watched it and she was, she was mad through a good portion of the movie. She As was, you're supposed she was to be frustrated. And then yeah. the ending is not, uh, you know, it's not a spoiler. Does I mean, obviously through the stuff that happens, it's not going to have a happy ending. And it doesn't no. have a happy ending. And uh, she was kind of, she was almost pissed that she that she sat and watched it all. Not because it wasn't good, but because it did evoke that response in her. I mean, it, yeah. it made her it made her mad. And it's like it that was that was the intent. That was uh, the goal of this film. I mean, I don't know, but I feel like people involved in this 
had had something related to this happen to them in their lives because there is a lot of sublimated anger in this film. Yeah. Um, and all of which has for decades stayed under the surface for our culture until just recently, you know, and it, it's, this is a, a film a, a very appropriate for people to revisit right now and go, wow, this is good. It took this long for this movie to be feel like for a bigger culture to be relevant, but it's a well acted, yeah. uh, well, really well written, well directed film that I recommend. I, wow. Never, not on my radar at all. And That's I really liked it. Yeah. Now, the other movie in this set, uh, uh, which is uh, Scream for Fear, I Scream believe. of Fear. Scream of Fear, which is also retitled as Taste of Fear, is interesting. I actually, I feel like much more so than the other Hammer set, this is, like, maybe not as good as the first film here, but is closer to being good than the other you one like was. You like more than Maniac? Yeah, a lot more. Yeah, yeah. Um, I would and, say I would say that as well. Um, Peter Cushing, or I'm sorry, Christopher Lee, Christopher Lee, played a role in here, which is a supporting role. But he actually said this is not my best performance, but it's the best movie I was ever in, which is interesting. Um, and, and when I watched this, I went, "Wow, this really feels like something that is so clever." And twisty in a good, smart way that I'm kind of shocked nobody's remade it. And sure enough, it's in the middle of getting remade right uh, now. There's a there's a scene with uh, Ronald Lewis uh, towards the end of the movie that was uh, a very impulsive moment for that character that made me laugh out loud uh, in a good way. Um, it's pretty. It was pretty pretty funny. The uh, yeah, the movie is about um, uh, a girl returns home. Susan in a wheelchair. Yeah, her uh, her father has passed away, and she's having um, these visions of her dead father that she can't explain. Uh, that's sort of the seed of it. And then from there, there's, again, lots of twists and turns. I think the whole stack of movies short of Basket Case are all about women being gaslighted. <laughs> I know, it does kind <laughs> of seem that right, yeah. It's like, like a theme overall was just like, do we trust her? I don't know. Like, uh, And then trying to trick women into like believing other things that weren't real, like scalpel or like this or maniac. Oh, my God. I mean, it was like a stack. Even the, it was the like, films you're not even on are like, wow, this is like a thing that's across the board. Even Ichi the Killer. Or like the deuce. <laughs> yeah, the deuce even. Oh, my God. I'm going to call this episode Gaslit. Yeah. <laughs> I like Scream of Fear pretty good. It's it's a little it's a little stale, um, but it's fine. There's it's, a lot of visual stuff I really liked here. And there's, it's more one, like, and I read ahead of time that this was being remade, mm -hmm. and I'm watching it, and I was like, wow, this feels like one of those movies that, like, Hitchcock almost made. You know what I mean? It's not as good as Hitchcock, but yeah. it, you can see why he would be, would have been interested in. Uh, and like, it's, like, there's so many interesting things, and in the, in the last act of this is, I thought, incredibly solid, with, like, one twist on top of another twist, where I was like, whoa, I yeah, did not see the way that was going. Those did work. Yeah. Um, but... It takes a while to get there. <laughs> it does. <laughs> There's a lot of fucking around before they get to anything and interesting. Can I ask how how deep was that pool? It looked like yeah. it was like it looked like it was like four feet by four feet. There was so many dive in it. It's like they're in the freaking ocean. There was so many pool in the middle of like their like little like but like patio area, and like oh okay, we'll go in there because maybe they something's in there, and uh, 
you're like, is the creatures in the Black Lagoon hiding deep like in like the depths? He's like swimming and thing? swimming and swimming, and it looks like it goes at least like twenty feet down, and there's like plants. What? I don't know. It was weird. Yeah. <laughs> it was All so right. Let's so move on to Lords of Dogtown. I'm gonna just flat out call it. I love this movie. Hey, Patience loves this movie. No, Patience does not love this movie. <laughs> I do. Um, maybe it's partially because this film came out in 2005 by director Catherine Hardwick, who is the only thing I think she did was really solid. But it was like this was about the group of guys who were cool shit that we wanted to hang out with when I was first starting to be like <laughs> old enough to be out skateboarding and doing stuff like, dude, I want to hang out with those guys. And we did hang out with some of these guys, Stacy Peralta and and uh, Tony Alva and people like that were like the original badass skateboarders. And it sounds like this would be just garbage by like like any other anybody doing this. You were like, okay, so you're gonna make a movie about all these people and like, oh, it was so cool, isn't it fun? Yeah, bunch so- of bunch of like almost rapist dudes and like, like you know, I mean, because they kind of are. Well, I mean, ev- everybody is some level of shithead. Yeah, but so the, I mean, this movie, I think what works very strongly for it is is that it's a very atmospheric and. Uh, you can easily dive into the the spirit of the times with this movie, and it's a pretty unique setting of of you know late seventies Surfside Ghetto, uh, Venice Beach. Totally. And I was not from California. I'm living in Virginia, but that stuff was echoing down years mm. later. Oh yeah, to Virginia is that point where like all of skateboard culture, where it became a real culture as opposed to just some sort of like twee thing, which yeah, was, started in the fifties, uh, like where it became like a sort of a thing that was cool was where surfers were like, well, this is not the time of year to surf. We're like, oh, a skateboard thing? Maybe we'll learn to do something with that and involved surfing moves into skateboarding. Well, and that's it, how it, that became a thing. All, all topped off by the 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 advances in chemicals known as polyurethane. Yeah, exactly. Where they're like, oh, we can actually do moves like surfing moves now because of wheels that can handle that sort of thing. They have that sort of grip. And you have Emil Hirsch playing Jay Adams, John Robinson as Stacey Peralta, uh, Victor Rasuk as Tony Alva, Heath Ledger playing the guy who runs the skate shop, yeah, uh, Skip yeah. Engblom, who's still alive and will, if you give him half a chance, we'll talk about this at length. Oh, uh, certainly. He'll yeah, charge it first. Uh, Michael Angarano is a invented character who was sort of like a combination of multiple people that knew at the time. It was like their friend who has a, a health issues, uh, but becomes a sort of sympathetic uh, rallying point for people when they become too off in their own world. But there's a lot of famous people who pop in this movie, including pretty much everyone the film is based on who was still alive mm. <laughs> when they did it. But like early roles for uh, uh, um, uh, what's his name? Uh, uh, Joel McHale, uh, Johnny Knoxville, uh, uh, Sofia Vergara. Yeah. Who read of that? You're like, God damn, who is that? Holy shit, that's Sofia Vergara. I was like, whoa, that's a, <laughs> that's a body that keeps saying words. Um, uh, Alexis oh, Jeremy Arquette, Renner. Jeremy Renner. I watched this movie. It's very stylish. It's very pretty. 
It's got great skateboard sequences. It's got a great soundtrack. And it has a sort of excitement from that period of time of, like, we don't know what's happening next that I found very yeah, like, well, fun, just fun to watch play out. This this is one of the movies where I, I actually explored the, uh, the the extras on there because a lot of it too. was just, fan, you know, fascinatingly done. The amount of work that the, you know, these kid skaters who grew up to become real people... To, to love and appreciate this time in their life enough that they all came back and all helped out with the movie just to make sure that they were properly represented. Well, almost everyone in this film was involved in the making of this film. Yeah. Which That's I, kind of amazing. was fantastic. And it was one of those, like, they all kind of split apart into their own worlds and then eventually all sort of became grown up enough to go like, okay, let's just... <laughs> yeah, I, that, was, that, was a, that was a cute little line from, from that making of. It was like, we've, uh, you know, we've won our, our races, we've, we're done competing, and now as adults we can actually have, you know, take the time to be friends again. Uh, yeah, as you said, there's, there are various making up featurettes. Uh, there is a very short gag reel. Uh, there is a commentary from the director and cast. But what you want to watch is the commentary by all the original yeah. this is based on, which this comes with, this extended edition of, of this, which is not super extended. It's a little bit extended of the verse. Well, but this is a solid film. And I feel like the documentary, which came out first, mm-hmm. um, uh, Dogtown and Z-Boys, yeah. is also really, really worth watching. But this is a kind of a fascinating period of time. Yeah, and seeing uh, somebody who looks like 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 dads, like Stacy Peralta in his older age, still doing those sick ass moves on that tiny ass board. Oh yeah, it made me laugh when there's a scene where Tony Hawk is playing a astronaut, An astronaut yeah. who is like. Uh, wearing the little astronaut suit, like, oh, why don't I step on your board? And he totally wipes out, and he's like, that's harder than it looks. And you're like, Tony Hawk, who is like, the, the what? He's the only guy who's ever done that one move, right? Like, what is it, like a seven twenty or something? I he's don't like know. the one guy who's done the one skate spin that no one has ever ever been able to do but him. And you're like, oh, that's kind of funny watching him. He's <laughs> just silly one. goose. Anyway, let's move on to Darkest Hour, which is a new release. Oh my god. Which so Aaron was, saw. Was did anybody say, else John, did you see this? No. I so <laughs> honest trailers didn't necessarily ruin this movie for me, but it recontextualized the whole thing in a really interesting way. Yeah. They had a bit about all the Oscar movies and referred to Darkest Hour as the movie that has all the talking that didn't happen in Dunkirk. Ah. <laughs> and so I ended up watching this whole movie going. So, like, this and Dunkirk are the same film. It's just, like, like the letters to Iwo Jima and Flags of Our Fathers that uh, Clint Eastwood did. It does feel like if you put them on top of each other, you would have one incredibly solid film. Yeah. Like, you would have no question the best picture film if both these films somehow crushed into one film. Because this is... Like Gary Oldman in a well-deserved best picture, best actor win. Agreed, completely. Uh, uh, for playing Winston Churchill, being the guy to decide to what to decide to do in the Dunkirk situation. Dunkirk is like all the second AD footage. <laughs> exactly. That we're like, where you're like, oh, now we're filming Dunkirk and what's happening over there, but there's no actual plot. And I'm kind of like, if you mix these together, it's so good. And I keep telling people, watch both. Like, back to back. Just watch both these movies and you'll have one great fucking film. But that does kind of do a disservice to this directed by Joe Wright, who 
is a fantastic visionary oh, uh, director. He, he's made one movie that I didn't love. Everything else he's made has been phenomenal. Pan, I assume. Actually, no, I, I love Hannah. It, it was no, Pan. Uh, oh, I haven't <laughs> seen it. I don't like Atonement. Oh, God, I love Atonement so much. <sighs> but so, Sorry. Sorry, Darkest Hour. Um, I really enjoyed it. <laughs> Back I, on topic. Yeah. Back on topic. <laughs> I watched it with my parents who... <laughs> On the Dunkirk thing, kept turning to me and going, "Now this is what Dunkirk should have been." So clearly, <laughs> it appeals to that audience. Um, like overall, I really enjoyed it. I thought Gary Oldman turned in a phenomenal performance. Yay, Academy Award! The one thing I will say that that got to me is I felt like the movie wasn't quite sure whether or not um, Churchill was good at his job or bad at his job, and because like. There would be scenes where everyone was just going, ugh, Churchill. But then there are scenes where he seemed to be that guy where, no, like he was kind of incompetent. And then it would turn around and he would be like, no, he's this amazing orator. And so I, I, was, I, I got li- confused with I how liked, I should I liked that, take it. though, because I feel like that actually is Churchill. Like, it's still history is still undecided about Churchill uh, as uh, a human being. Did not know that. You know, <laughs> he was a really mixed bag of a human being. No question about it. Whatsoever. That may be true, madam, but tomorrow I shall be sober and you will still be ugly. That is true. <laughs> I'll hand you that. Um, there's audio commentary by Joe Wright. Uh, there is a, about eight minute behind the scenes and, but the thing you want to see more of is Gary Oldman talking about becoming Churchill and there's only four minutes of it. And you're like, okay, I would have watched a a feature length about Gary Oldman talking about his transference into this character because it really is the best thing in this movie, which I I don't mean to dismiss entirely the rest of it. I think Wright is an excellent director. Uh, I think this has a, a good but not great script, but right visually does a lot with it. It's just that Oldman is such the standout here that it's hard not to look at him as the reason, the main reason to pay any attention to this at all. Agreed. Uh, unfortunately for Joe Wright, he's got a performance so good that that's the only reason you watch the movie. Well, let's talk uh, John Golson. Oh my God! You got to Speaking watch a movie. Of fantastic performances. <laughs> you got to watch a movie that normally I would have saved for our, our horror podcast, Deliverance of the Dim. But uh, it was one of those like I, we they sent to me like, can you can you do this this month? And I was like, yes. And I know just the guy who might like this movie. Uh, that would be you, John. By the way, uh, this is was pro- Italian horror film, nineteen ninety one, The Sect. Depending on where you got it, maybe called The Devil's Daughter, produced by Dario Argento, directed by Michel Suave, who did a lot of films I really liked in Italian horror. I think was it wasn't for me Cemetery Man. Is Cemetery like, Man that's is like the big the one, the number yeah. one. Yeah, yeah, which is uh, astonishing. And, and I, there's there's good in the church, but I think I keep expecting. Doesn't this feel like a Spinoff of the church or something? Sort of. I, I always keep expecting thing the the movies from Michelle Suave to to hit me in the same way Cemetery Man did, and none of them ever do. No, none of them are like. And this as well has very surreal elements to it. But Cemetery Man, for whatever reason, despite the fact I wouldn't even call Cemetery Man necessarily a good film, but there's something about the order in which things take place in it that. You're just satisfied at the end of it, regardless. It doesn't mean you watch it. Anybody goes, "What was that about?" You go, "I have no fucking." It's idea. never not entertaining. But, 
yeah. Cemetery Man. No and, matter how nonsensical it is, yes. it's, it's almost never not interesting. Well, what is the plot of this one? The plot of this one involves a woman who hits a guy with her car, and he may have planned that because she lives on top of a well that is a, the worship site of this sect, and he puts a bug in her nose so she can do? monitor her nightmares. Yeah. Uh, all all this rigmarole to basically it gets spoilery because it's a long long time before they get to the meat of it, which is basically this is sort of just a Rosemary's Baby redo. Yeah. It's totally it Rosemary's Baby. Over an hour before it starts to become that. It's Rosemary's Baby with more sort of like red herrings. Yeah. And like a, a bit of uh, uh, Charlie Mance, uh, Manson-ish type referencing. Yeah, it takes a while for... It opens with uh, like a 60s hippie killing, and it takes forever for that to come back into play. Um, <laughs> yeah. I will say this about it. I, I, didn't, I didn't care for it. Um, it never was weird enough, gory enough, uh, creepy enough... <laughs> The stuff happens, those little moments happen so sporadically. It's a long wait before you get to the next one. But the transfer of this movie is, it's one of those where the movie and the transfer don't align. Like the quality of the film is is mediocre at best. But the transfer is freaking gorgeous. Like Very true. It, it, they did a great job on the restoration. Did this, um, I, and I agree with you, I think as well with... I, I, and I maybe this is something with Suave that he has all these great visual ideas, and I feel like that's who the people who did the transfer were like. We wanted those moments are what meant something more to us because otherwise it's kind of a crappy uh, Rosemary's Baby ripoff. Yeah. Um, but there's some beautiful stuff here, and there's some stuff that's so obvious it's fucking weird. Like she's like, "Huh, that's weird." All the water in my apartment's coming out blue. I'm gonna take a bath in it. Like yeah. shit, like that. Like why? Because it looks cool on camera, <laughs> exactly. and it does. <laughs> You're no mistake, especially in Blu-ray. You're like, oh, it looks great. But <laughs> in terms were... of a movie, it's just like, what is happening? Yeah, people will recognize Herbert Lom from like the Pink Panther movies and yeah. like as, some... as the boss who's originally just the boss and then yeah. eventually turned into the evil boss. Yeah, and then Kelly Curtis who. Uh, I had seen in movies before and didn't know it, but Jamie Lee Curtis's sister. No who, shit. Who looks a ton like Jamie Lee Curtis. I wondered about that. Yeah, they're yeah, they're that's her older sister. Did not know that. Um, or I, I should say, Kelly is Jamie's older sister. I, I found this movie like as a big fan of giallo and Italian horror cinema, like uh, a satisfying curiosity. You know, not one like I would expect. I would say. You're even slightly new to this. You should go and check out. Yeah. If you're an old hand and you're looking for something new that has some cool moments, this has got some cool moments. Yeah, in. I was gonna. Now that you bring that up, I, I should be kind in regards to like I've seen far, far worse. Oh, far yeah. worse. Oh my god. Uh, the the greatest crime this has is that it's kind of boring. Yeah, it takes too long to get to what it wants to do. Yeah. And and even that is like a little too familiar. But it has some visual stuff that I think is super interesting along points. And I love watching some of the extras here where they're talking about like how the director 
actually did discover that there was like a, a tunnel that led under his house that led to a weird fucking arcane sewer and that led to him having nightmares and stuff. I'm like, yeah, no shit. <laughs> like, wow, what a shocker that that would end up with you being a hard director. And plus he talks a lot about how he ended up, he was just such a fan of Argento and like Bava that he got in this position in the bonus features uh, uh, where he got a chance to do this. Like, he was just like baffled that he was even here. Like, oh my God, how did I even get to this point in my career that I'm getting to make a film with these guys is kind of cool and alone. If you're a fan of Giallo, maybe it's worth renting this, picking it up just to see some of those bonus features is a little moment in the history of the evolution of the stuff. But you're right. Cemetery Man is the film to see by Suave. Yeah. Which is quite good. All right. Well, let us move on to uh, Coco. Who saw Coco? Anybody else see Coco? John, you saw Coco? I saw Coco. Yeah. It won Best Animated Film this year. I'm going to say uh, they sent out, uh, Pixar sent out the, we're going to do real briefly here because they sent me just the digital copy of this. Thanks a lot, assholes. Um, <laughs> I... I love Pixar. I think, I mean, come on. Is there anything, does anybody go, do you take anybody seriously after they go, oh man, Pixar sucks? You go, all right. Sure. <laughs> That's fine. You're, you don't know what you're talking okay, about. Okay, fine. Okay. I'll say a fuck a Toy Story. Uh, now you don't feel that way. Yeah, I do. I don't, I, I'm yeah, but so you don't annoyed hate by this. All of Pixar films. Oh, no, absolutely not. You think most of Pixar films are pretty good. Most right? of them are just. Yeah, like, yeah. okay. Well, that's the best one. <laughs> Which one? Uh, no. <laughs> oh, except cars? Oh, jeez. I was like, oh, what is happening right now? I was like, wait, is he wearing a, his I Heart Wieners hat? Because I'm just going to say. Dude, I love Wieners. I know. It's all right. There's nothing wrong with that. Um, I think Coco is... All right. Hold on. Michael, come here. <laughs> Hello, audience. He's a Mexican guy here, and I know that... I feel weird talking about this film. Dude, I'm right here. <laughs> I have to feel like no matter where you, you go didn't now, see this it. is awkward. Yeah, but I'm Mexican. <laughs> yeah, but you didn't see it. Oh, okay. So now that you're, you're you're telling me my experience as a Mexican-American. <laughs> That's awesome. Can you back me up on this? Back him up on what? That if he didn't see it, he shouldn't review it? It's up to him. God damn it, Michael. Do you is, like mariachi music, Joe? You can, uh, it depends on how drunk I am. You then you'll like this movie you if you're super drunk. You guys are all racist against white people, clearly. <laughs> Just clearly. kidding. Just kidding. Let me be clear. Michael, you saw this movie. I did. Did you find it engaging? Absolutely. Did it make you cry? For a while, yes. Wait, what had stopped? Huh? What stopped? I Why got over my grandma's death. Yeah, that helped. Oh, <laughs> Wait, during this movie? Yes. Holy shit. This is a transformative that's power. That's officially yeah. the best review that just happened. This, yeah. is, this movie this is the reason. you get over your like, grandmother's death. Yeah, like, I, the, the reason I was bawling my eyes out after we watched this movie the first time was because I was, like, still trying to get over my grandma's death, and this movie helped me a lot. Well, Joe, <laughs> did you get over Michael's grandmother's death watching this no, movie? No, but uh, my dead grandfather was a guitarista. That does help, actually. <laughs> Was your dead grandfather Joe's grand? Uh, I, I'm oh, not. so we're all related. <laughs> I get it. My dead grandparents just are skeletons. <laughs> yeah, oh, mine, mine are too. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> High fives all around. <laughs> uh, I, I genuinely enjoyed this film. I didn't. I didn't personally. Uh, and with, I keep going. Yeah, I know. I'm just a white guy. I don't have the culture thing to it. But like, I. 
it didn't connect with me the way it did with apparently a lot of other people I know. And I don't mean just people of Latino origin, because there are plenty of people who did who connect with it who aren't of Latino origin. But I was like, I felt like it was kind of by the numbers in a lot. Of the it. message of the movie is just family, like at the end of the day. And a lot of people connect with that message. And oh. that's, you know, it's heartfelt enough that I get why some people... Like, because, you know, having seen the movie, I get why you don't entirely connect to it. Because there's a lot of problems with the movie here and there. Like we said, it was very slow in the beginning. It kind of oh, explains you were on things. The for that one. Yeah, I was on the review for yeah. that. We kind of explain things here and there that, you know, that doesn't explain certain things right away. And you just sort of accept certain things. But at the end of the day, I loved it, but I can't fault you for the way you feel about it. I feel like it's a movie that I'm going to enjoy a lot more when I get a chance to rewatch it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Where, like, I walked into it like I do every Pixar film. This might be the greatest thing I see all year. Like, every Pixar film, I feel that way. Maybe it <laughs> is. Where I walk into every Pixar film going, this could be the best film I see this year. But they will still never be Kubo. So what's They'll the never point? be what? They'll never be Kubo. So what's the point? Kubo, uh, yeah, I heard Cujo for a second. I was confused. <laughs> or Cujo. If they make an animated musical out of Cujo, I'm in. I'm, I'm just saying. No. They make Kubo, tell dogs go to heaven. Kubo and the two strings. Or two just, strings? Four strings? Well, uh, how many two strings? Joe knows more so than like there, were a lot of, there were a lot of strings, depending on which version you watched. But yeah, I, I, I think there's a solid as shit Pixar film. I just didn't personally find it. One of their very, very best. Like, I don't know. It's okay. Mexican-Americans forgive you, Chris. Do they? No. (laughs) Are you speaking for you guys both? I got a twofer getting from the... uh, I I speak for him. (laughs) I speak for the tree sometimes, too. No, Chris, you're not racist. Some of your best friends are Mexican. (laughs) That's true, right. Dude, I got the fucking double Lorax thing going on right now, and I'm going to say that I feel forgiven for it. There's a lot of bonus features here with this. Uh, There's... Uh, a lot of which have to deal with Pixar going, we swear we really had a lot of Mexican-Americans working on this film. In fact, the bulk of these extras are exactly that. Like, we swear this was a lot of Mexican-Americans working on this film. Is there how to make their tortillas on there? Because I could use that. No, I could use that. You know what? <laughs> Just watch any Robert Rodriguez movie. He has a little 10-minute cooking school. He'll teach everything. No, the secret is butter. You got to knead it in. Well, everyone knows that. Yeah. Yeah, it's lard. <laughs> Weirdly, though, there's not really, like... I didn't feel like they didn't have the, the, the traditional short extra film. So I was like, okay, where's that? You want to watch that? Where's the short film? Oh, it's because it didn't get released separately. Yeah. It's the Frozen one. It already existed yeah. separately. Yeah, yeah. It, they had to. Which everyone hated, apparently. Well, I thought they had to cut it out because it was like 20 minutes long and people weren't expecting it, w- it to be. It was not long. well liked as well. People were very like, wow, that sucked. So, so I don't know. I haven't go. seen it. So not judging. Um, but moving on to Aaron, did anybody else see this uh, film Faces Places, which has been nominated for Best Documentary this year? No. Okay, so did you? I did. So uh, I was super conflicted about this movie. I was until I wasn't. Oh, okay. You know, I was really <laughs> bored for a little while. And then I felt like this movie kind of gelled. Like, I all, there was this moment where I was like, oh, I can't even say I have a, a epiphany, but I felt like it just kind of was like there with them. And this is one of those, this is the most French shit ever. Like, <laughs> like this documentary with like an artist and a former uh, photographer, actress, who's like much like 40 years older than him. And she's in her 80s and he's in his 20s. Yeah. Who are like, oh, we're going to go around 
in our tour bus around France, and we're going to get people into little photography booths on the tour bus. We'll take pictures of them, and then the side of the bus has a massive, I mean like a six-foot-wide printer, to print images of them. And then we're going to cut out the images and and glue-paste them on various things. And, and that's the movie. That's the movie. So and that, I mean, but that's not really the movie. The movie is kind of the more interesting movie is those moments that it's just about this 20 year old and this 70 year old who have this strange friendship um, that I can't even say I totally understand, but I have a, I am the exact opposite. So the movie begins with this cutesy little dialogue interchange about how they met and it felt so forced that it made me not view any of that as real. And so for the first two thirds of the movie, all of the stuff between them, I was like, I don't really care about this, but all the stuff where they were talking to the people that they were photographing, that was really interesting. And the art that they made and the people that they discussed, the projects that they were doing really pulled me in. And then they would cut to them trying to decide where to go next. And it was awkward and forced and weird. There was so much of that though. That it was like, they were just like kind of driving around France. Like here's some dude who does nothing. How you doing? I'm good. What do you do? I fucking don't know. Why are you even talking to me? Well, we're going to put it in the film. All right. Now here's your image on the side of a building. And I was kind of like, waiting for this film to get to something that was I relevant. I say you guys aren't selling me on that. No, I wouldn't expect <laughs> I would. Like, it, it kind of gets to an interesting point where they and I don't really, I don't know how you can spoil something like this, but I don't want to spoil it, who they go visit. But they go to visit somebody from her past. And that yeah. was that was interesting. Yeah, I mean, I think but, you can say it. Like, we never see him outside of old footage, but it's Jean-Luc Godard. Well, that's what I was going to get to, is that even that Oh, it's like, oh, this is going to be really cool. Not We're John Luke conf- Dar, That's no, from fucking it, Star no, Trek, isn't it? it, it, it no, that's no, Picard. Picard. Okay, so <laughs> hold on. I've had it's, we recorded this right on the end of uh, Deliberations of Doom, so I'm a little it's, drunk. It's so. Godard. You know what? Fault. That's your fault. Godard. That's close fault. enough. But the thing is, even then, you're right. You <laughs> don't meet him. It ends with him like kind of insulting her, maybe. Yeah. And. It goes nowhere. So, oh, in, in the extra features, there's more about there? like fuck that guy from her. Like John Luke is a dick, and and he's never supported me, and he's always been an asshole. And I don't know why I ever thought of him as my friend. I'm like, damn, this whole movie ends up as a kind of big fucky middle finger to to Godard, <laughs> the film director. It's like that's unexpected. Um, but I, I don't know. Is that point where I was just kind of like, I went into sort of a haze with it. You know, you're kind of like, okay, I guess this is what it is. You're driving around the French countryside and you're having weird things. I thought the best points were where they just did weird shit that had nothing to do with their plan. Like outside of the photography, there's like, let's just do a weird thing for art. And it would be like, okay, that was fun, I guess. But I have no idea why this is nominated for best documentary. Yeah, agreed. Uh, No. No idea at all. It was... At best, this felt like a PBS travelogue that would be fun to watch because you stumbled upon it. Well, our last film of this week is a film, I'm just going to say it, and genre grindhouse films is 
an absolute classic. And that is something I got John to watch with me. I don't know if any of you other guys have seen it with as well, but this is the 1982 re-released by Arrow by Frank Henlot or his, his shot across the bow of horror uh, or just, I don't even know horror is the right term, cult, whatever for Henlot or whatever category he defines in filmmaking. Basket Case, which is still, I didn't even rewatch this because this just got re-released like six months ago by another company. Oh, really? (laughs) But nowhere near as well as this. Um, But it's, this is such a solid re-release. I love the Basket Case series that gets progressively more batshit insane as it goes along. Mm -hmm. I would argue that the only problem with Basket Case is that it's not as dumb crazy as the next two Basket Cases are. You know, but there's something about the other two that feel uh, sort of sanitary compared to this one. This one feels like it, and I haven't watched the Deuce, but everything that you described in the Deuce, this feels like a side story. Like it takes place in the same world as the Deuce, but it's about this guy with a vestigial twin that's cut off of his body. Somebody needs to video oh mix God, those things to happen. All right, what's the plot? Tell it's very Forty Second Street, but basically there's this guy. Not the musical. No, okay. like it's it's yeah, it's very once again would have been better. Yeah, <laughs> uh, it's about this guy. He moves into a seedy hotel, and he has a secret. And the secret is that he carries his brother Belial with him in a in a basket. Uh, it was a like a vestigial twin growing out of his side that he had removed. So he, and they can communicate cut, to each he other. Cut off his quad it basically, yeah. <laughs> oh they, well, they, the thing the was world. they were going to separate them and they were going to kill the one that wouldn't have a normal life, which was Belial. But he saves Belial. Um, Dude, that's just that's just bad naming, though. That's that's setting your kid up for failure, you name a Belial. <laughs> Is that like naming your daughter Candy, you know, that she's going to be a stripper? Or, or, or just like Horror Babylon. Yeah. <laughs> it is, it is candy, a tough candy, name, but, you know, he doesn't candy, have candy. legs and he lives in a basket. So it was going to be a difficult life regardless. <laughs> but he could have been named Jonathan and it would have been <laughs> the yeah. same same shit. Or, or, named or, Tom or, Jones. Or, or, yeah, or like some yuppie name, you yeah. know. Yeah. He uh, could have been Biff. But if you have no arms, no real arms or legs and you're in a basket, it's kind of... Biff? So... What's your go-to yuppie name? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's you so, don't get Biff from a... That was an 80s thing. Yeah, like yeah. Muffy. Like, yeah, Muffy. Biff and Muffy. Yeah. yeah. Uh, it's it's such a Portion. grimy, like, dirty, scuzzy, yet charming, cute at times, hilarious at other times. The special effects are super funky, uh, borderline oh, yeah. terrible, uh, but the movie is propulsed by its own weird... Like darkly comic sense of humor uh, that gives it like a different flavor from other things that are like it. Did this? It's, um, it's like I can, I felt like I'm. I saw this twenty twenty five yeah, years I, ago. I first saw it. First I was time. flipping channels. I was like fourteen or fifteen years old. It was nineteen ninety, and because I can remember what house we were in, and flipping channels and catching basically the last half hour of it, and just being like. What is this? What yeah. am I watching? Right, right. Yeah. Um, I think I was prepped for it in the sense that I had watched the first Evil Dead. I don't think the second one was out yet at this point. Mm-hmm. And somebody was like, oh, at the video local video store, you like that. You should watch this. I was like, okay, that wasn't enough to prep me for what this is. But it is that same level of like weird 
sense of humor mixed with like splat stick yeah, stuff. There's like this Slime City street trash. There's like this cluster of movies that all came out around the same time. Yeah. That are all sort of these grimy horror comedies that aren't really horror enough to be horror and aren't really funny enough to be comedy. But this is, I would argue this is one of the high points of that period. Yeah, and I really like this one. the original Evil Dead. Mm-hmm. It's fun, and they've got this actor, uh, Kevin Van uh, Henterick, uh, I think I'm pronouncing that right, playing Dwayne Bradley, who's in all of these, and as well as kind of just given up in his professional career. I, go, I guess this is what I got. I'm always going to be this guy. So... Because when they re-release this thing, which, once again, emphasizing, you've never seen Basket Case, you should totally watch the shit out of it. It's fun. Uh, he's appears in all these extra things. Uh, there's a commentary track with uh, the director, Frank Henlotter, who's made... Do I like everything Henlotter has done? Because I think I do. I've never seen Frankenhooker. Uh, Frankenhooker's great. I'll yeah. loan it to you if you don't want to see it. It's great. I'd like to see it. I Because like, yeah. I like brain damage and I like... Like brain damage case. a lot. Yeah. Like Bass Case. Yeah. I, I really liked... I, I was very standoffish because of the name alone, but I ended up thinking that was pretty terrific when I saw it. Henlotter's one of those guys like, you almost don't want to question him on anything. He's like, just do what you do. Let's not bring anything else into it. Just do what you do. You're You're complicated. <laughs> uh, but there's a commentary track with him and with the star Kevin who have a great time who've been friends since before the, even this film, film was made So, and they obviously have a lot of chemistry together Did and they they're fun to hear real people from New York just like people that happen to be around oh totally it doesn't yeah. feel like some of those feel like real prostitutes and slumlords did and you, not <laughs> not actors did you watch that documentary that came out last year about um uh, Cohen, Larry Cohen. No, I remember. Yeah, I know what you're talking about. Yeah, there's a lot know. of that about how they're just like, yeah, just like it's fucking New York and this. It was the deuce. They just were like, people were like, you want 50 bucks to go do this? You're like, yeah, I'll do that. It was fucking, there was hookers and pimps on the street. They'd get to go, wow, motherfucker, look at that shit. And yeah. they, that was a real just guy on the street. They got to do that. I God, like, I hope that's an actual line in this movie. I, I, it's I almost. Yeah, it's uh, close. There's an interview with uh, 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 the lead actor, Dwayne, uh, playing Dwayne as, as his character and the idea being that, like, he's playing that character. He's like, shh, shh. Like, oh, 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 my brother's around here somewhere, which is a really silly short film idea. Like, it's not very... It ends on a very, like, wah-wah type of thing. Like, oh, my God, they have a model of the monster that they dip into the camera to go, like, oh, everyone's dead now. It's really goofy, uh, which they call Basket Case Three and a Half. Uh, there, there's a more serious interview with him for like 17 minutes, which is actually pretty good. There's a, a way too short an interview with Frank, who's always very funny. Um, uh, but in this case, they have like another a, a supporting actor in these movies playing him, and Frank interviewing him as if he was him. I don't know. There's a lot of bonus features on this thing, and. I think it's well worth your time. This is kind of a, if you like horror comedy, I would consider this a kind of progenitor of it all, you know, like one of the earliest of everything that, that, that we consider to be horror comedy now, you know, of splat stick and everything. Like I would consider this to be one of the important progenitors of that. Mm -hmm. I mean, like more so than this old dark, this dark house or something like that, you know, like, 
this feels like the thing where all horror comedy, like Dead Alive and everything, came out of this. Yeah, I would say that's probably pretty accurate. For whatever it's worth. Anyway, that is it for this week's Digital Noise episode. Thank you guys for having a group episode here together. I really appreciate it. Uh, I had to do this because South by Southwest was about to happen, and I was like, fuck, I don't have enough time to have separate episodes. Oh, and you poor, guys are awesome. poor guy has to go to South by... It is a lot of work. Oh, I'm sorry. You gotta watch movies. <laughs> well, I gotta go to the Westworld event. And I gotta oh, yo. Free drinks, and like, oh. they're gonna have robot hookers there for us to have sex with, and it's like kind of a pain. That sounds kind of cheapy. would do that. Yeah, they do. I know, right? I'm just like, oh, I have to have sex with this robot hooker? And they're like, if you want to do the review correctly, I'm like, all right, then I guess. It's worth the, the spoilies. <laughs> That's what. All right, fair enough. Thank you for listening to Digital Noise. Uh, we will all be back in various other separate segments very shortly. Uh, and please use the links to buy these titles, please. I'm already exhausted. This is like my third podcast tonight. Uh, good night, everybody. Bye.